Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for April 15th to 21st, our last show. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during this week in psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Michael Wertheimer on the life and career of his father, Max Wertheimer, the founder of Gestalt Psychology. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this last installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. for April 15th. In 1955, George A. Kelly's book, The Psychology of Personal Constructs, was published. For April 16th, in 1913, the Henry Phipps Psychiatric Clinic, one of the divisions of the Johns Hopkins Hospital, was opened. Adolf Meyer was the first director of the clinic. Also on April 16th, in 1943, Albert Hoffman, a research chemist, left work due to what he called a remarkable restlessness and dizziness. Later, he experienced a stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes and intense colors. Dermal absorption of LSD-25, the substance he was working with, was suspected. Although unintentional, this was the first LSD-induced psychedelic experience. For April 17th, in 1958, Joseph Wolpe's book, Psychotherapy by Reciprocal Inhibition, was published, describing the method of systematic desensitization. For April 18th, in 1861, Paul Broca performed an autopsy on his patient nicknamed Tan, who had been aphasic and who had died the previous day. Broca found a lesion originating in the third frontal convolution of the left hemisphere, an area now named for Broca and known to be associated with language functions in most people. For April 19th, in 1904, Carl Jung published his first studies on word association. The studies, carried out at the Bergolzi Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland, were interpreted by Jung as support for Sigmund Freud's theory of neurosis. For April 20th, in 1965, Leonard P. Ullman and Leonard Krasner's book, Case Studies in Behavior Modification, was published. This was the first use of the term behavior modification in the title of the book. April 15, 1880 is the day on which Max Wertheimer was born. Wertheimer would grow up to rebel against the approach to psychology popular in his day, by which conscious experience was broken down into its presumed elements. Instead of assuming that complex experience is defined by the parts of which it is composed, Wertheimer argued that psychological wholes are primary and in turn define the parts we discover when we examine them more carefully. He named the approach Gestalt Psychology, and with his colleagues Wolfgang Kurler and Kurt Kafka, set out to revolutionize the discipline. We are especially pleased to have on the phone to talk to us about Max Wertheimer's life and career his son, Dr. Michael Wertheimer, of the University of Colorado. Professor Wertheimer is the co-author, along with D. Brett King, of the book Max Wertheimer and Gestalt Theory, published by Transaction Publishers in 2005. 
I have to apologize in advance for the audio quality on this interview, but such are the risks of telephone communications. I hope you enjoy it nevertheless. Professor Wertheimer, um, if we could, let's start by learning something about what uh, the early Gestalt movement stood for and what earlier approaches to psychology it was critical of. It was primarily opposed to what they called the piecemeal, associationistic, and summative approach of the then dominant uh, psychologies, particularly Wilhelm Wundt, uh, the effort to break conscious contents into their elements and and see how the elements compound to create the wholes. Instead, um, they argued there is a primacy to the whole, that by and large, not only uh, human experience, but uh, the, the whole physical and biological world is composed of uh, gestalten, of uh, structures, forms uh, that have subparts, and that it is not the nature of the whole that's determined by the sum of the parts, but rather vice versa, that the nature of the whole determines what the various subparts must be and what uh, the part, the, the, the function of, of each part must be in the whole. That, I guess, in a nutshell, is uh, what Gestalt theory is about, to look at natural wholes and try to see what their constituent parts are and how the place, function, and role of each part in the whole is determined by the nature of the whole itself. So it's essentially going uh, from above down rather than from below up in trying to understand any phenomena, uh, psychological as well as uh, biological and physical. Okay. So, so how did Max Wertheimer become attracted to this new way of viewing psychology? Uh, what was his background? And if you would, what sort of man do you remember him to have been? Um, he wasn't attracted to it in a way that many people consider him the founder of the Gestalt movement in psychology. He, in a way, uh, generated it. But uh, at the time that he was being educated, uh, right around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, there was already a lot of discontent with the uh, piecemeal, uh, elementaristic approach in uh, science, in knowledge in general. There was a kind of holistic uh, atmosphere uh, on a lot of, especially the, the younger intelligentsia, very much discussed, for example, was music. Music played a, uh, classical music played a much bigger role in everyday life than classical music does now. And there was the observation that a symphony uh, is not just a sum of notes as such. It's not this plus that plus the other instrument playing this and that and the other part. But especially for a good uh, orchestra conductor, uh, the orchestra can make the various subparts fit together to generate the whole symphony as he conceives it, or she conceives it, so that the uh, various subparts, the parts of the individual instruments become uh, what they are because of what the nature of the whole has to be. He did have some training from uh, a philosopher who uh, had a kind of, uh, of holistic approach to things, uh, Christian von Ehrenfels, who um, in analyzing the nature of wholes came up with the idea that uh, there is a whole quality over of the elements that compose anything like a square or a triangle or a melody, 
that there is this additional uh, gestalt quality, as he called it, that's added to the uh, elements to generate the whole. This kind of thinking was clearly in the air. It wasn't until about 1910, 1911, that uh, Max Wertheimer uh, came up with uh, the rudiments of a new gestalt theory, which said that not only is the whole not the sum of its parts, or the sum of its parts plus something else like gestalt quality, but that the whole uh, is prior to the parts and determines the nature of its parts. As far as what kind of a man he was, that in a way is almost the same question, because for virtually all of his life, at least as far as I've been able to determine, uh, he essentially lived and breathed gestalt theory. And it was not only about psychology as such, the, the ideal in trying to solve a problem, for example, is to find out what the crux of the problem is, to uh, ignore the irrelevant superficiality. So, for example, if a child wants to build a uh, bridge out of blocks, what's relevant is the size of the two vertical members, uh, the distance between those two vertical members and the length of a cross piece that's been placed on top of those, but the color of the blocks is, is irrelevant. He, he essentially lived this, uh, this way of thinking every day, and uh, it uh, rubbed off on us kids, too. Very often at the dinner table, there'd be discussions about uh, some current events problem, and uh, what would be the most productive way to resolve it, taking into account all of the relevant, uh, important, crucial items, and ignoring the superficial, irrelevant parts. Um, he called the root or core or essence of something, it's radix, R-A-D-I-X, a Latin word for root. Um, in productive thinking, what one has to do is get at the radix of the situation uh, and try to resolve it that way. Again, his orientation toward art, music, uh, political events, games, uh, was all in terms of finding what the uh, most essential aspects of something are and then uh, trying to get the best outcome altogether. In fact, when he was uh, teaching us chess, the game, um, he would insist on taking back bad moves. One should make the game be as good as possible. And this was one instance of... Uh, a general principle of Gestalt theory, the principle of pregnance, pregnance in German, which argues that uh, any natural whole will tend to be as good as the prevailing conditions allow. Then in 1933, of course, the Nazis come to power in Germany, and it soon became impossible uh, for him to stay there. Uh, could you please tell us a bit about his experience during that difficult time and how he came eventually to leave for the United States? Yes. Um, he was aware during the early 30s of the growing Nazi movement. And for that matter, uh, in an interview I had with one of his last uh, doctoral students, Wolfgang Metzger, he encouraged Metzger to complete his dissertation work as quickly as possible because uh, my father wasn't sure how much longer he could continue to be a professor at the University of Frankfurt, where Metzger was doing his dissertation work. Uh, in early 1933, we didn't have a radio or a TV, of course, in those days in our house, 
my mother and father went about three doors away to listen to a campaign speech by uh, Adolf Hitler. Apparently, Hitler was ill at the time, and his voice wasn't as strong as usual, but they were so, what's the word, shocked, I guess, at the nature of the message and at the possibility that uh, he might get elected as chancellor. that on the way back home, they decided then and there to leave Germany uh, and to go to Czechoslovakia, uh, where my father's father still had uh, a kind of legacy that he could use. So we moved to uh, Marienbad, Marienskalazne, to a hotel called the Golden Harp in uh, January of 1933 to wait it all out with the hope that uh, Hitler would be defeated and all this uh, nonsense would uh, blow over. Of course, it didn't. Uh, we stayed there until September of 1933, and in the meantime, there were explorations to various uh, other institutions about uh, the possibility of his teaching there. Uh, there's documentation that uh, there was a possibility at Cambridge in England, another one in uh, Jerusalem, uh, now Israel, and a third one at the New School for Social Research in New York. So in early September, we uh, left Czechoslovakia uh, by rail going south so that we wouldn't go through Germany at all, all the way up to Chiabour in France, whence we took uh, a the then largest ocean liner, the SS Majestic, over to New York, where we arrived in uh, mid-September of 1933. Um, we soon had a rental house in New Rochelle, just outside New York City, uh, just a few blocks from uh, a uh, commuter rail that would take my father to uh, a new school in New York where uh, he held his lectures and seminars. Although the U.S. provided a safe haven, American psychology was then in its uh, behaviorist heyday, and much of its intellectual community was not terribly hospitable to Gestalt theory. Uh, what sorts of academic opportunities and frustrations did he encounter? Well, this position at the new school was by no means a very high prestige or a very solid one. The new school... Uh, was already having some financial problems. It wasn't clear how well it would survive, etc. He did give, uh, did have extensive lecture tours throughout uh, the United States, giving colloquia and symposia at uh, various institutions, where he was generally received uh, very politely. Uh, as it happens, uh, his colleague, Kurt Kofka, had already, uh, some 10 years earlier, a little more than that, uh, published rather extensively in the American literature in English, and that, I believe, did help the reception of Gestalt theory, even though uh, behaviorism was uh, such a strong movement at that time. Uh, in fact, there's extensive correspondence that we have between him and Clark Hall, one of the major figures in learning theory in the behavioristic mode of that time, and with Edmund G. Boring, who was a late representative of the Tichinerian, more structuralist approach, both of whom showed uh, strong respect uh, for uh, my father uh, and were trying hard, apparently, really, to, to understand what Gestalt theory was about. Uh, Hull probably came closer to understanding it than Boring ever did. Uh, there was a lengthy correspondence about a particular Gestalt concept, isomorphism, the idea that uh, there is a structural 
identity between um, various aspects of human experience and the underlying physiological and brain events, which um, Boring apparently tried to understand together with some of his other colleagues at Harvard University uh, without ever succeeding. Uh, so, yes, while Gestalt was not something that uh, every psychologist at the time uh, valued and, and, and accepted with open arms, there was a good deal more openness and curiosity and interest and, and support than one might have expected. Hmm. Well, with the early deaths of, of both Max Wertheimer and Kurt Kafka, the Gestalt movement struggled a bit to establish a, a permanent place in American psychology. Um, but some of the uh, movement's American students became very influential. Uh, Leon Festinger and Stanley Milgram come especially to mind. Do you see Gestalt as having uh, an ongoing legacy in American psychology? Uh, I do. Uh, there is also a third figure, Wolfgang Kula, who survived a good deal longer than uh, than or Kofka, who uh, in fact was uh, was very well received by the American psychological scene, um, and in fact was uh, elected president of the American Psychological Association. So to the extent that he uh, was identified with Gestalt theory, there was clearly recognition of Gestalt even in American psychology. Uh, I think of the two individuals you mentioned as sort of third or fourth generation Gestalt theorists. Others were Kurt Lewin, uh, who um, had, had a very strong effect, uh, particularly on social psychology and personality. Uh, Mary Henley, perhaps not as well known, H-E-N-L-E, who continued the uh, traditional Gestalt approach. Uh, I think what's happened, though, Although uh, there were continuing uses of Gestalt theory, not just in psychology, but in uh, art history, uh, in aesthetics, uh, in film, um, in sociology, in literary criticism, uh, the last decade or so, just now, recently, uh, has seen a major uh, rediscovery of old Gestalt issues. Um, especially in cognitive neuroscience, in visual neuroscience, in personality and social theory. Uh, in fact, Wolfgang Metzger's uh, early book, 1936, my father's last doctoral student in, in Germany, uh, Laws of Seeing, was considered so uh, pivotal in terms of today's issues in visual neuroscience that a colleague in Germany, Lothar Spielmann at the University of Freiburg, decided to get that 1936 book translated into English because, as he saw it, of its current relevance in visual neuroscience, and as it happens, four of us were involved in getting that thing translated, and it uh, has just been published by MIT Press, uh, arguing, in effect, that uh, these classic Gestalt issues, at least in visual perception, are once again very current. Uh, I think there are, as I mentioned, other areas as well in which there's been a resurgence of interest in Gestalt theory. And if anybody is interested and has the time, there is a biography of my father called Max Wertheimer and Gestalt Theory that was published by Transaction Press and co-authored by D. Brett King and myself, the last chapter of which goes into precisely that issue. Uh, what has been the legacy of Gestalt theory uh, 
since uh, the uh, the major figures passed on, and what is its uh, relevance today? And the argument is precisely through this Lothar Spielmann of the University of Freiburg that uh, Gestalt issues are once again really quite current. Well, thank you very much for this. We have been speaking with Dr. Michael Wertheimer of the University of Colorado about the life and career of his father, uh, Max Wertheimer, the founder of Gestalt Psychology. As he mentioned, he is the co-author with D. Brett King of a biography entitled Max Wertheimer and Gestalt Theory, which is published by Transaction Publishers in 2005. If you're interested in reading more about Gestalt Psychology, you might read Mitchell G. Ash's Gestalt Psychology in German Culture, 1890-1967, Holism and the Quest for Objectivity, which is published by Cambridge University Press in 1995. You can also find a number of articles from the Gestalt Psychologists in translation at the website for the International Society for Gestalt Theory and its Applications, that's at gestalttheory.net. And now it's time for birthdays. For April 15th, in 1858, Emil Durkheim was born. Durkheim was a French sociologist best remembered by psychologists for his theory of the social causes of suicide. Also on April 15th in 1907, Nicholas Tinbergen was born. Tinbergen earned the Nobel Prize in 1973 with his ethological studies of innate behavior dispositions and their releasing stimuli. For April 17th in 1840, Hippolyte Bernheim was born. Bernheim was a French neurologist and hypnotist who explored the connections among suggestibility, mental illness, and psychotherapy. For April 18th, in 1917, Sigmund Koch was born. Koch is best known for his editorship of a series of books called Psychology, a Study of a Science, published between 1959 and 1963. For April 19th, in 1801, Gustav Theodor Fechner was born. His theory relating stimulus energy to sensory experience marked the beginnings of scientific psychology and the field of experimental psychophysics. For April 20th, in 1745, Philippe Pinel was born. With his appointment in 1793 to the directorship of the Bisset Insane Asylum, Pinel is often said to have begun modern humane treatment of institutionalized mental patients. Also on April 20th, in 1915, Joseph Wolpe was born. Wolpe developed and promoted behavioral techniques of psychotherapy, in particular, systematic desensitization. For April 21st, in 1848, Karl Stumpf was born. Stumpf was an early experimental psychologist interested in the study of spatial perception, audition, and the scientific study of music. that's it for not only this episode, but for the entire podcast series, This Week in the History of Psychology. We would like to thank, as always, York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes have quoted directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 
to those of you who have listened to this podcast regularly or who have assigned it to your own students, I want to extend my special thanks. Without you, this could never have happened, and it's been a blast. Thank you.